I have two guests for today's podcast. The first person is Carmela Navarro from Chicago. Carmela is an LCPC, that's a licensed clinical professional counselor. She currently works for the Army Reserve as a suicide prevention program manager, providing out-of-the-box training in suicide prevention and resiliency. I know Carm personally, and I know she is out of the box, which makes her fabulous. Born and raised in Chicago, Carmela is a third-generation Mexican-American. Her work with the military and in private practice has allowed her many cultural opportunities to appreciate others' worldviews and perspectives. Carmela has two sons, 23 and 22 years old. Her first adopted son, Jacob, is from Guatemala, and her second son, Josh, is her birth son. They're 14 months apart and the joys of her life. My second guest is Rick from Chicago, who joins us as a male role model for young, inspiring men to follow. He's worked with children ages 9 to 19 as a life skills coach and mentor, helping to guide their paths to a brighter tomorrow. Thank you guys for joining me. I have some questions for you. Carm, one of them, I'd like to start with you because it's something that you wrote in your introduction that I wanted to ask about. I want to talk about what your identification preference is in terms of, you mentioned that you're a Mexican-American. Mm-hmm. I've known people who call themselves Hispanic, Latina, Chicana. I just don't know what the right thing to do is. Is it to ask the question to find out what's right for you? Or what kind of categories should we be using? Names, I guess. What's your preference? I think for me, my preference is just um, Mexican or Latina. As far as Mexican-American, that's how I guess I identify that way based on some experiences, which I'll share later. I always refer to myself as a Latina. I like that. Not Hispanic, huh? What's on all the census forms and all those boxes you're supposed to check? Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Rick, do you have a preference one way or the other? I don't know if it's a preference. I think I'm more technical about things because I follow the ancestry of how we came to America. We all came somewhere else. Mm-hmm. My ancestry actually comes directly from Mexico. My father was born in Mexico. My mother was born in, in Texas. Oh. Texas used to be part of Mexico. So I consider myself as Mexican. Now, I don't consider myself as a Latino because technically the term of Latino, those are the Anglo-Europeans who came from Italy. So I don't consider myself as a Latino and I don't consider myself as Hispanic because Hispanics are the Anglo-Europeans who came from Spain. So Mm. the the ancestry of who migrated from where, that's how they come up with the terminology. Okay, so could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experiences with discrimination and inequity in life? I was thinking about this and when I really realized that discrimination was actually taking place, I grew up on the northwest side of Chicago, which was predominantly Caucasian, Irish Catholic neighborhood. And we lived in a two flat. My cousins lived on the first floor. We were on the second. And so the school I went to, Catholic school, both elementary and high school, were predominantly white. I didn't really notice that anything was per se different because on the weekends, we would always go to my grandparents. And we had one set of grandparents that lived in the Humboldt Park area, which is a predominantly Mexican, Puerto Rican neighborhood. And then my other grandparents lived in Hilton neighborhood off of 22nd and Damon. And we would have a big family, so we would just all be out in front of the houses. 
a lot of family time, a lot of music, a lot of eating, a lot of gathering. I think it was more in towards fifth grade when I started to experience bullying by some of the kids that were in school. It was a lot of teasing about being Mexican, a lot of stereotypical comments. Some that stick out or one girl was like, we were talking about parents and she's like, oh, your mom works at a factory. Does she even speak English? Did she graduate high school? Which she didn't. We did a cultural day at school and I brought in a traditional dress that my aunt actually had given me that she used to wear in her dance classes and parades. And one boy just took it and ran with it and would just make all these racial comments towards me. My dad raised us, my sister and I like tomboys, so we could hold our own. And when I got into a fight with this kid, I called to the principal's office and my dad was pretty verbal about this redheaded Irish boy picking on his daughter. And high school was an all-girl high school, so it was a little bit more diverse, but still, I would say, more Caucasian. But it was mostly, well, then I got into the workforce, and as a woman, and it was a blue-collar distribution center, there was definitely some ethnic and racial boundaries. That was also in the mid-80s, so all the sexual harassment policies were just starting, so there was kind of a double whammy as a woman in administration and was just like as administrative assistant, but in human resources, also dealing with being a Mexican woman, I was not taken seriously. Probably the only one in my family who went to college and had graduated with a graduate degree. I was almost dealing with two types of discrimination because my family was, my mom's goal was just don't get pregnant in high school and finish high school. I took it beyond that and went to college trying to work for an education and better myself intellectually as well as professionally. And then dealing with a workplace that was primarily men and dealing with sexual harassment and being a Mexican woman. It was a struggle for a long time until probably my mid-20s. But it was just like having a voice, standing up for myself, not being afraid to do that. And it was very, very challenging. I don't know if that answers a lot of your questions. Um, so. uh, and listening to you talk about the bullying that happened in middle school, it makes me wonder how that affected your self-esteem and your ability to speak your truth and have a voice. Right, so right. It, it seems like it maybe prepared you negatively for the life that you were going to have. And then where did you find the strength to stand up for yourself is what I'm wondering. Where did that come from, Carl? It mostly came from my father because my mom is very light-skinned and my father is darker-skinned Mexican. My dad grew up with a lot of racism. His family, they were one of the first Mexicans in their neighborhood and they had a lot of racial experiences where he shared one experience where they set fire to their house. Wow. Rebuild their home and you know, him and his brothers, he had five other brothers and they were, you know, all in these street gangs. And it wasn't like the gangs like now. He described it as like the West Side Story gangs, you know, like, so they would go through the neighborhoods and kind of hold their own. And so when we moved to the Northwest Side, because we actually, I was born around 64th and Group Street. It was near when it was called Comiskey Park where the White Sox played. We moved and my dad was always giving us the message of don't let anyone take advantage of you. We weren't afraid to do that, although there was still some shame around it because my parents spoke Spanish, my grandparents spoke Spanish, but they didn't want my sister or I, and even my cousins of my generation, don't speak fluent Spanish. My mom was like, no, you speak English. 
My mom was very adamant about saying not to be in a relationship with a Mexican man. I'm like, why mom, you married one and he's pretty awesome, you know? But she did not want us to go through some experiences that her and my dad went through. It was confusing at Mm. times to know, okay, well then where do I belong and who am I? But I'm very proud of who I am. And I consider my sons, it's like, I want them and other young girls to see that a woman of color can have a voice, can be educated, can empower, and it takes time to get there. There's definitely a road that you have to be on and not having shame around it. And I think that's something that as a woman have struggled with. And also in that era of the sexual harassment becoming something that you're not supposed to be doing in your job. One experience I could share is when I was working at this company and this young girl, she was in the mailroom. And so she would deliver the mail through the warehouse. And there were two men who were harassing her and she was a Mexican woman. I went with her to HR, to my manager, and I said, this isn't okay. So what are we going to do about it? And really fought with her to have these men disciplined around not being in touch with her. There wasn't a policy in place then. Mm. So she was scared to come to work. It was giving her, I guess, an ally to help her figure out how she can be maintaining her job and feel safe at work. Were you afraid that they may retaliate against you? No. No, because I had support from my management. My HR manager was actually really cool about wanting things to change, and I felt okay about it. Good. I'm glad of that. Rick, tell us a little bit about your experiences that have (laughs) happened with you in your life. Well, we grew up in South Chicago, I want to say 25th and Drake, which is a little village area, and that was a little bit too rough. Parents wanted something better for us. (laughs) We ended up moving to more of a southern suburbs. I don't want to say specifically which one. For middle school, we ended up more in a black community. We thought we'd have a better chance there. Being in a black neighborhood, we were more of the outcast because we didn't really fit in with the blacks. And it was always more of a struggle fighting between the blacks and the whites. And we were just stuck right in the middle. We didn't fit in anywhere because we were just there in the middle watching that racial fight. We got out of that neighborhood and moved to another neighborhood, which is a little bit more upper class. It was a little bit more well-to-do about our first house, and things were getting better. But now it was still the same prejudices that were there, and it was still inescapable. We were still the Hispanic family who was getting by, who was being successful, but not giving credit for anything. You were the hardworking family on the block. You're the new people here in town. You have your own company. You know, you're doing whatever. You have hardworking parents, a nice new car, a nice new conversion van, new furniture, but just not given the respect that everybody else in the neighborhood would get. So my way of trying to escape, to run from the problems instead of facing the inequalities, my way of level the playing field was to go where everybody would be fair and equal was to join the army where everybody was just green as opposed to being black, white, or brown. And that's where I found my fairness for years. There, as long as everybody was equal, everybody was of the same uniform, I was given an equal opportunity to excel and be promoted without a skin color or skin tone. I got promoted a whole lot faster than the whites. People who were overlooking and overstepping me back in Chicago, people who weren't as smart as me, I was passing them 
and getting promotions and promotions and job positions higher and higher and higher and higher. But at the end of my enlistment, I came back home. I said, okay, I can show and I know and I have this record to come back home with and I can distinguish myself and show these people this is a Mexican who went out for four years, was successful, accomplished. Now this isn't the same little poor Mexican that left. I came back in 97 and was exposed to the same discriminations. Illinois didn't change. (laughs) Illinois only got worse and they didn't want to hear nothing. I was honorably discharged with medals, with awards, with ribbons, with distinguished accommodations. They wouldn't even give me a job washing dishes. Wow. 1997 to 1999, I found myself locked up in prison. Mm. I found the struggle of 1999 till about, I want to say 2010, the last time I was living out of prison, back and forth all those years. So one day I just said, you know what, I need help. And I got the help that I needed and turned my life around and said, you know what, I'm not going to spend another day in prison. I want to get whatever help I need to get, stay out of here. And then I just turned my life around to get the help that I got. And from there, I said, if I can do it, I can help other veterans, Mm -hmm. other Latinos to get out of the rut and get out of the track of discrimination and helping. Mm -hmm. And that's what I said. I need to help other people. If I can help myself get out of this I can help other people do it because I did it for myself. And that's how I've gotten to where I'm at now. I've created my own success for myself. And now I'm showing other people what steps they need to take because I did it myself. Shining the light for others to follow in your footsteps. What a beautiful thing. What would you like people like me to understand about your struggle to be Mexican in the United States? What do people like me need to know? I mean, we live with such privilege and we don't even know that we have it. We're born into it, so it's a little bit like oxygen, right? It's just always there. We don't think about it. We don't recognize it because we don't live the life of someone who doesn't have it. So how could you help someone like me understand that? I think it's just exactly what you said. In my experience, when someone sees me they already have perceptions based on their own experience or what they see in media. A good example, this was in my early 20s. My ex-husband and I were engaged and I was meeting his extended family for the first time. And his cousin asked my mother-in-law, well, what kind of Mexican is she? And I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? Because I didn't understand what that meant when I asked my ex, I said, well, what does that mean? And he's like, oh, just ignore. I'm like, no, like, what does that mean? And it's funny because anytime something like that happens, any kind of comment generalization, to me, how I've looked at it now is instead of getting angry about it, and maybe it's because I had to fight a lot when I was a kid with bullying that I experienced, and I grew up with a lot of boys too, I look at them and be like, I'm sad for you because of your ignorant statement why don't you ask me about me versus what kind of Mexican I am. When I've worked with clients and their experiences, it's for them looking at their family values because in my experience and in other experiences with clients who are from, whether it's whether they're Mexican, Puerto Rican, Guatemalan, their experiences in trying to change something, but their family has a huge impact on their decision. The dynamics of 
family within our culture weighs a lot on decision that are made and maybe getting out of that box is really challenging especially when I've worked with Latinas who are just coming out to their families as lesbian or gay. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't tell my family, but this is who I am. Family dynamics are huge. Consider what that means to them because it means a lot when it comes to choice. And I think also one of the struggles that I've had to deal with in regards to educating other people is just because, and this is also why I say I'm on both sides of the fence. The third generation Mexican woman I don't speak fluent Spanish. So I've gotten into situations where I have friends from the workplace and I had said, oh yeah, you know, my, I call it Spanglish because it's really bad. And they're like, oh, well then you're not a real Mexican. I'm like, yes, I am. But because I'm not fluent, then I'm being judged on the other end of it. It's just like getting to know the person, which includes the culture, which includes their family experiences. To know that there is privileges that you say, Kim, that you have, I may not be able to have those same privileges, but doesn't mean that I can't obtain what I want. For me, it's working hard. I think like Rick said earlier, it's really working hard for what you want and recognizing I want something more, I want something better. When I think about privileges that I've had, one of the biggest ones that stands out in this conversation is I was never bullied as a kid. I don't even know what that would be like. I wasn't a bully ever. But there were times when I saw other kids being bullied and it was usually a bigger kid against a smaller kid. I would always step between them and dare that bully to hit me because I felt like the self-appointed champion of justice. That's really how I saw myself. And I think about some bullying programs that they use now where they're talking always about the bystander. And I didn't want to be the bystander that did nothing. If something wrong is happening, I wanted to step up, just like you did, Carmela, for that other woman that you spoke of. Here you are in a similar situation, but you didn't let that stop you. You spoke up and you did something about it. And for me, when I think about allies, that's what an ally does. You can't be someone's ally when the sun is shining, but turn your back on them when it's raining. You have to be there in the hard times too. It's not something that you can take on and off. You either are or you're not. And sometimes that means your own personal well-being may be threatened, right? It may not be physical. It might be physical, but it could be that someone decides they don't like you because you're standing up for someone else. I don't know. I think it's important. How about you, Rick? Do you have anything to add to that? Piggyback on that thing, as far as being bullied, a bully has to know their victim. All bullies and all people who are doing things know never touch, mess with, or threaten in America a white female. Mm. Say that again. Never threaten a white female. Your victim cannot be a white female in America because she is the most protected thing America holds sacred. Two prime examples I can give you, Emmett Till case and the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. In both of those two cases, just a simple accusation of a white female saying that someone did something to her even it being a lie, they found them guilty. Yeah. And it ended up in death. Yeah, it's a big price to pay. Yeah. The ultimate. Yeah. So for a bully to come and do something to you and touch you physically and for you to justifiably be right is just as much almost would be the worst accusation that a bully could come under. 
Getting back to your other point with prejudices and things of that nature, go back to the question again that, that you had asked uh, Carmela. Well, the question for Carmela was, what would you like people to understand about the struggle to be Mexican in the U.S.? How could you help people understand that? I think there's a way to express it, but I think it's something that it's not understandable until you walk that path. Mm-hmm. Until right, you go I agree. It. You can never have me feel what it is to be white in America because I can hang around with all the white people. I, you can put me in the best Armani suit, the best Ferrari, put all the money in my bank pockets, mm-hmm. give me a nice haircut, jewelry, diamonds, and at the end of the day, I'm going to turn around and go to the bathroom. They're going to say, you know what? Fuck that Mexican. Yep. Right. What is it to be Mexican? Mm-hmm. A white person's going to say, well, I don't know. Too bad for him. I'm going to go sleep in my bed. I'm white. And I'm always going to be right. White privilege and entitlement, it's just there's no way to explain it. And there's nothing anybody can do to take it from you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that answer. And I just want to share from where I sit, I 100% agree that no white person could ever really know what it is to be Mexican, Puerto Rican, anything other than a white person. But I do believe that with safe communication about difference, not about difference in terms of what's wrong with you, but about difference to help each other understand what life might be like. I know when you talked about nobody touch a white woman, there was a part of me that felt like the only people allowed to touch white women are white men, and they do some things that we need to be protected from. But then that's felt differently because it's white men who have the privilege, really. White women get their privilege by marrying white men, and they get to have some of that privilege as well. But it's not like we don't have someone that preys on us as well. It's still nothing like what happened to Emmett Till or in that movie that you shared with us. I can talk to you about incidents of discrimination against me as a female, but it isn't pervasive like racism is. Our system was built on racism and it's built into everything that happens and most people can't see it because it's just a part of the way things are. I went into a store with a friend of mine who was a black male. We both bought different things. I had my order, he had his order. We went through the same checkout line. I went through first. I handed over my credit card. She looked at it and rang me up, took my card and that was it. I stood at the end of the checkout line waiting for my friend to go through. He did exactly the same thing I did, put his things on the belt, got checked out, handed his credit card, and she said to him, can I see your driver's license, please? And she didn't ask me for a driver's license. So I knew in that moment I had privilege, but had I not been with that person, I never would have known that's a privilege. I would just think that's how it is for everybody. Mm -hmm. Why would you have to show a driver's license if I didn't have to show a driver's license? I think it's having the conversation and opening people's eyes to the things that do in fact happen that we may not be aware of. And I think that helps people get involved and pay attention that there are things going on that are really wrong. And you can stand up for yourself all you want, but I think that it takes people who are in the power positions to be able to stand up with you. 
I don't think victims get the respect they deserve just by standing up to the bully. I think people who look like the bully have to stand with the victims to really be able to give voice to what your concerns are. I don't know what you think about that. I agree with you because when I think about experiences and working with, you know, I worked in the domestic violence field for a while and it was in a suburb that was predominantly Hispanic. Most of the women were either Mexican or Puerto Rican and they are already oppressed and then trying to allow them to feel supported in some way. We had a group of counselors that worked at the center. Even though I wasn't fluent in the language, when they came into the center, they asked to speak to me. The other counselors were white and there was an African-American counselor as well, but she worked a different shift. It was interesting that even though I may not have spoken the language and we actually had a translator we could call, that it was just having someone to identify with in the culture with the same color skin that was like, can I please talk to you? And it was almost like a safety thing. When I would post my profile as a therapist on Psychology Today and I would, or someone would refer, I would get clients who identified because not so much of what I think what I said, but because they saw an educated female who was like, she can help me because she gets it. And I've heard clients say that to me. Yeah. There's definitely something there when it comes to, if you want to empower other people, men or women, you want them to be able to identify. They're going to hear you. They're going to listen to you. It's important for them to see that. You made a comment, Kim, which was interesting when you said you'll have more privilege with this white man. I think that's why my mom was so adamant about marrying outside of the culture because of the experiences that she had as a Mexican woman. I want you to have different experiences. Although they really weren't much different. It was just a different time. Right. So that's an interesting point. When you say different time, do you think that times have changed? Is it better or is it really same story, different day? I think that better in regards to being able to go to college and have that experience and continue my education at a higher level were experiences my family didn't have. But racism hasn't changed much. It's still there. What do you think, Rick? Racism's still there, but they've disguised it with different name and different title. Mm-hmm. Now they don't say Hispanics and Blacks cannot apply for the job. Now they tie it in socially and economically. Now they say, you cannot apply for this job unless you have a bachelor's degree. Well, who are the ones that are getting the bachelor's degrees amongst the neighborhoods? It's not the blacks and the Hispanics, it's the whites. So they're basically telling you, unless you're white, you are not able to apply for this job. Very small percentages of blacks and Hispanics are walking around with a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or higher to get this job. But they're telling you, better terms, as far as not racial, we don't want you to apply for these jobs. So the discrimination's there. It's just disguised within the literature. If you can walk into it and see between the lines, it's there because you're still not getting that damn job. Yeah, I've heard some of my friends who are African-American will say things like they almost think it was better in the 60s and 50s when you knew who the racists were because they were out and in your face and there was no question about it. 
but now it's not so cool to be that person. So people disguise it and you don't really know who you can trust. Right. I agree with that because we know the thing that's different is that we know racism is wrong. We know that you shouldn't do that and people will still do it, but they'll, some people, not everybody will do it subtly, such as Rick explained. I'm going to interview for the same job this other person did, but I'm not going to get the job. And you can almost tell, at least I feel like I can almost tell when I'm talking with somebody in their interactions and their eye contact. It's like you almost feel like you're judging me (laughs) and I'm feeling that. I try to teach my sons that because both my sons have had experience with being discriminated against. My oldest son hangs around with more, more of his friends are Mexican and black. And so He's in a car with his friends and he's gotten pulled over multiple times, not for speeding, but because there's four kids of color in the car. Whereas my other son, who is lighter skin, is with his friends who are white and he's not ever gotten pulled over. So it's still there. I went a few months ago for a job interview and the reason they came back and told me I didn't get the job, it wasn't because I wasn't qualified and it wasn't because I wasn't the best candidate or nothing. They said, we don't think you're best suited for this position because we did a background check on you and it shows that you had a run-in with the law 25 years ago and we don't think this would be a good fit for you. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, well, let's talk about it and tell me how this is going to affect my job performance. They said, well, we just don't think this is good because it's a government job. I said, well, if you look at it, it shows that they charged me and then turn around and drop the charges on me because they knew that when we go to trial on this, I wouldn't be found guilty. They said, yeah, but it was against the municipality. Then they dropped the charges. I said, well, then they should have expunged it from my record. No, you should have expunged it. Uh, we went back and forth. I said, well, you know what? If it happened 25 years ago, I'm 45. It happened when I was 20. A lot of things happen when you're a kid. But <laughs> to get a federal job, something that's top secret, they only go back in your records 10 years. You went back 25 years on me and found something that they charged me and dropped the charges on me. Why don't you just say you don't want to hire the Mexican, you know? But they didn't. They just said, well, we're just not going to hire you. Sorry. And that was it. They couldn't find anything else to disqualify me except the charge on my record that was in my background that I got charged for something and they dropped the charges on me. And oh. My very first coaching client in Chicago after I moved to Chicago in 2004 was a set of parents who had a young child in high school who had been arrested three times for drug possession. And I think in 2004, I don't know, it was that was the time of three strikes and you're out, I'm not sure. But this boy, maybe because he was underage, he never went to jail, ever he would get fined and his parents would pay it. And the last time they got in touch with me because they wanted to learn some different parenting skills that would maybe help their son. And my approach with them was there needs to be accountability for the things that he's doing. It can't be that he just gets a pass. And so they ended up getting him community service for his last offense And the father worked it out with one of his friends that this son wouldn't actually serve the community service. He would just sign off on his form and let him get out of doing it. I just thought that that was not going to help the son, first of all. But I wondered if he had been a person of color, he wouldn't have had the same treatment. I know it already that he would not have had the same treatment. He probably would have been in jail 
on the first offense, if not the second. There wouldn't have been a third without jail time. Yep. Almost like a double whammy. It's like I have this darker color on my skin and I have this past or this history. But again, you're not looking at me now. You don't even know who I am. And so when you say, you know, what, what can an ally do or what do they need to know? They need to know who the individual is. And although I come from this culture, which I love, doesn't mean that I don't know what I'm talking about, that I'm not an intelligent woman, that I don't have a voice, that I want to get to know your perspective too and consider it. And so I think that's what's important for an ally. Know who that person is that you're talking to. Don't judge me just because of this, right? Or because of a past experience. Right. I think that's really important. And I talk about that. Actually, my first book was called Leveraging Diversity at Work. And from the beginning to the end of that book, it was all about don't put people in a box, a stereotype, and think that you know something about them. Find out who they are, just like what you said, Carmela, and, Mm -hmm. and find out who they are and get to know the person as an individual. Mm -hmm. And when you know the person as an individual, you'll make decisions based on that. There are white people that I don't like. I don't like all white people. There are white people I don't like because they're not nice people. And I know plenty of people of color who I really love because they're great people. It's not the box that we put people in that makes them a particular way. It's who they are on the inside. Skin color is, is completely irrelevant, except it's relevant in terms of what you've had to deal with. Right. You haven't had it as easy as someone like me. You've had to deal with things that I've never even had to think about. It seems like you're in a catch-22 because you want to be accepted by the dominant culture, which means you have to trust them to a degree, but you can't trust them because you've had many experiences that show you that it's not safe to trust. So I wonder if you could say something about that they could try to put me in a box because of what they think I am. I feel sad for them because of their ignorance does not mean that I'm going to allow myself to not move forward. Because if I did, I would have not continued with my education after high school. I would not have pursued a job where I was pretty much traveling on my own, which I've gained wealth of experiences from. I would have not have met you. (laughs) You know, if if I believed the stereotype that others may see me as, then I wouldn't be where I am. I think it's two things. One, it's my guard is definitely going to be up in certain situations based on my experience with populations that I'm in and places that I go. I'm going to make sure that I'm safe and I may not trust right away. And people are going to say things that are going to allow me to know that I shouldn't trust and also following my gut. The other thing is not allowing someone to hold me back just because of their perception and to continue to move forward to hopefully empower other men and women to do that. Same thing. That's beautiful. Rick, how about you? I wake up with the same question on my mind every day. And that question is, how can I help you? It's awesome. Right? If I continue to be a gentleman every day, and do the best that I can do to be a better me, I'm going to attract that to me. Not everybody who comes to me is my friend. Everybody comes sometimes with a mask, and sometimes I have to make them reveal themselves to me. They walk in and out of my life, and so be it. Two friends who come will take. Those are the people you focus on. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Great advice. 